Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Kaya, Miles, talking about the news that was underreported in the last week, the news that you don't know about race, justice, and equity that you should know. And then Diara sits down with political strategist Valerie Biden to chat about her new book, Growing Up Biden, a memoir. They chat about women in politics, the legacy of the Biden family, and the future of America. Learned a lot. Listen. Let's do it, y'all. My advice for this week is to uh, listen to some of the old tunes, the old tunes that you listened to in college uh, when you were a kid. I went down a whole rabbit hole of songs about Jane and what a great album. I mean, I feel like that got me through college. Shout out to Maroon 5. So listen to some of the old stuff. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Okay, so I'm sure everyone at this point has seen, I mean, you must be under a rock if you haven't seen, but the Sesame Street Place snub that happened to the two little adorable Black girls. I'm not that familiar with the new Sesame Street character, so I can't even tell you what character it was. I mean, I'm sure Kaya knows. Her name is Rosita. I'm sure there was not a Rosita inside Rosita. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt that. But anyhow, so if you guys, if y'all haven't seen it, basically these, it was like, you know, like, Sesame Place Parade and all the characters are walking down the Sesame Place, you know, the fake little street. And the little girls were trying to just get a head nod, an acknowledgement, a what's going on from Rosita. And she basically waved her finger at them like, go ahead, go ahead, y'all need to move on. So now everyone is up in an uproar, okay? So much so that they've got our cherish civil rights leaders involved, like Ben Crump. He's down there doing press conferences. They setting this up. They're going to get some Sesame Place money and ke- black kids are going to be able to go for it free. It wasn't just... <laughs> <laughs> yes, if Ben Crump could get black people to go to Sesame Place for free, honey, he will have done something. I was like, where is Sesame Place? I didn't even know that was a thing. It's about to turn to Sesame Street off of um, Malcolm X um, Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick. <laughs> Sesame Place is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch country. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just that Rosita didn't mess with the two little black girls and said no. It is that the accusation is that she was very accommodating to white kids and in fact, told the little black girls no, and then went on to hug a little white girl. 
And Rosita's defense is that she can't see, right? She couldn't see the kids. Um, and she was just saying no to some lady who wanted her to hold her baby, which is against park rules. That's what, that was the, like, explanation for what happened. Until the other videos came out. Let them know, Kaya. What? Go ahead, say it. No, th- uh, there were other videos that made it clear that Sesame Place was lying. And they put out that first statement that was what you just said. And then... Three more videos come out and it's like, no, you actually were just ignoring the black kids. And then they put out a statement that said they were sorry. Do we know who's in that costume? Do we know who's in there if, yet? If I, if I was Rosita, in? I would stay. Listen, <laughs> listen. It's a good thing she had on a costume, huh, Miles? Oh, like like Paul, who's probably in that Rosita costume. Stay a not a miss. <laughs> Stay, stay your ass up out of this. <laughs> that is the that's the blessing for you is that nobody will have to ever know, has to ever know. Wait a minute! In the Daily Beast, it's police arrest two Rosita protesters outside a Sesame Place. Okay, everybody, okay. calm down. Everybody, <laughs> listen. It's for the culture, baby. Damn, it's for the culture. Let me. But I I can't listen. I'm here. I'm right. I, I felt this is a safe place, so I feel like I'm talking in the kitchen. In, in the kitchen with y'all. So, if anybody asks me outside of this moment in the kitchen with all these thousands of um, listeners, <laughs> you know we have a million listeners. I know. Right? I'm, like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, but we all we we the, we this in a big old kitchen right now. So, the story when I did see the attorney talking, when I saw the other person talking, and they started kind of really wailing around psychological trauma. I it, it it was a little I like couldn't quite tell if it was an SNL skit for me like it was it was a little campy a little hammy but also I know Sesame Street has might have fake monsters but they have real money so I get the reason why we are coming here really big on this on this situation but it it is reading a little just a little hammy it ma- it makes me ugh. It's, it's a little cringy for me when I look at it. <laughs> I will say one of my friends uh, has a child with um, special needs and and she posted on Facebook. She was like, you know, they're one of the few parks that actually take special needs into account. And she was like, her experiences, she's a Black woman. And she was like, her experiences haven't mimicked what she saw in those videos. And she wasn't discounting that. But of she was like, there have been days that have been good. Um, I think what was hard for Sesame Place is that instead of just saying they're sorry and they're going to do better next time, it was a doubling down, making us not believe what we saw with our own eyes and making that parent look like the crazy Black woman who was being dramatic, that wanted her kids to get something special. And then when those other videos came out, it was like, okay, okay. Now y'all trying to gaslight her and that's not cool. Yeah, no, it makes me sad because I do love, Sesame Place was one of my formative like I, I, I went there as a little kid. I still have the pictures, and it's one of, like one of the last places that I remember um, going with my whole family, <laughs> like like as a like as like a like as a family union um, before my mom and fa- um, father broke up, and it was dope. I, lo- I always loved the history of Sesame um, Ses- um, Sesame Street and um, who got to be on there. I saw Erica Badu on there when I was younger, which was fly. Like. Solange has been on there. Like they, I just always thought it was a really cool, dope thing. So it does make me sad, but you know what helps p- sad black people? 
Girl cash. Money. <laughs> a little Y'all cash. With some free tickets Y'all to said. Sesame Place thrown in. Y'all hilarious. Get out. I mean, that is the, the, like the origins of Sesame Street, the Sesame Workshop, was that it was designed for black and brown kids who most times were staying at home. Their parents were working and, they, and were watching TV and they wanted TV to be meaningful and educational and whatnot. And, and from, you know, jump, the representation, right? Like the, all the things, they are kind of the standard bearer for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that's why people were are really like out of the frame on this thing. Yeah, and hold them accountable because they started it. They, you, this, this is, this is part of y'all's legacy of every kid, should only be pride, have pride about their race, not feel discouraged about it. And Sesame Place said that. Said if we can love this big old yellow thing, and a and a man who lives in a trash can, and somebody else who can't who who steals cookies, we can love you too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the ethos of Sesame Street. Go ahead, mom. Speaking of pride in our race, did y'all see the Wakanda Forever trailer? Goodness. Oh my gosh! Um, Amazing, like chills, like beautiful. So I, again, we're in this small, sacred kitchen, kitchen. of mm. a million, of a million, <laughs> <laughs> and and I've not seen the Black Panther movie. I never, I, I did not see it. I didn't see it. Wait, stop! Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! Hold I didn't hold see it. it. Hold it. it! Hold it! I didn't see hold it. it! We have Listen. to have a full stop because. I literally don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth right now. Let me tell you something. I love it. I support it. The only reason I'm telling it now is because I, it's way later. But, okay, my nerves are bad. Um, health, my, my health insurance didn't cover my anxiety medication at the time. And I can't do all that exploding and kicking and moving around. But now, <laughs> I got a prescription. <laughs> And I'm gonna and I'm gonna du- and I'm gonna and I'm gonna do a double feature and see both. But I'm but I was literally oh moved God. to tears for what kind of forever and hadn't, hadn't the 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 thing that I want to say is I have no clue what Black Panther is about, but, but I support it. But I was still almost moved to tears by this new trailer, and I have no idea what I was looking at. I'm like the Bob Marley going to the Kendrick Lamar, and then the picture. Yes, of that was the, so uh, hot. Like I was like, oh my god! Then Angela Bassett is like giving us the Tina Turner Turner mouth. I'm like, oh my god! I have gosh. given everything. Haven't I given everything? Oh Ow. my! She was talking to Joe Jackson when she said that. I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, she's give her the Oscar right now. Um, I'm, but I'm I'm super excited as somebody who's totally ignorant to what it's about. I'm excited to dive in. Sponsored by, I guess, like Prozac. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Oh, I, I can't. But I think it's interesting, Miles, because, you know, when Black Panther came out, you know, it was like an experiment for Warner Brothers, right? We're gonna, we don't know how this all-black cast, all-black, we don't know how it's going to do, right? And so... Worldwide big blockbuster. Assumption, a big assumption that I, they probably didn't market the film to black people. Just saying, Diara be knowing this Some stuff because this is the business that she's in. But I'm, I'm confused. So I, and so I think probably this time, like even with how that trailer was put together, like it is like we're post 2020, all the things and the pandemic, and they probably are like we gonna make this black this they gonna come out. So now we have the runway to do the thing. So I, it, 
and I'm this is all conjecture, yeah. but I just I think it's interesting that the change in you wanting to see it now that we're you know it's like four years later from the first Black Panther, maybe but five. Sometimes I'm a little confused because if my memory serves me right. When I was growing up, Warner Brothers stands for WB. And when I was growing up, there was a tap dancing frog that was telling me that Sister Sister, Living Single, Smart Guy, and all these other black shows come on. So how did this tap dancing frog know that has WB behind me? It's the same just think with Fox and In Living Color and all those other shows. All all the, the TV in those days. I don't know. I don't know who. We need to dig up those white people and find but where they yeah, are. I'm over here like, so how us. did you not know an all-black thing? I'm like, I remember just faithfully that a tap dancing frog told me that they knew. Th- I, I remember we let that happen. A tap dancing frog mm. let you know <laughs> that your black shows are about to come on. And, and with a crown hat and a tuxedo on, if I remember correctly. Talking about, oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. My mom said, oh, my God, you did not just. I was. Listen. I just, it was so, anywho, I just, it's, it's interesting to me that Warner Brothers didn't. I feel like they had a lot of tests when it comes to media, television, and film that all black things do well. So I don't, I don't quite understand the apprehension. No, each, no, each generation Got it. of industry leaders, we are educating. Got it. Whatever, whatever. Here's the thing. We are in a moment right now where the Wakanda <laughs> forever thing damn near broke the internet. Child. Yes. Let me tell you, why do we have to it's wait amazing. until November or something for this? This is ridiculous. It's already in the can. Put that thing out. We need to see this. We need this right now. We've been traumatized for the last how many ever years. And I feel so proud and amazed. Oh, like, I need this film right now. Right now. But not in but isn't November. It isn't it kind of like Christmas where the all the anticipation of Can't wait. kind of the beauty of it though? Like Can't the, wait. Can't the wait. conversations and the outfits and the talking about what you're gonna do. Ruth Carter, baby. Ruth Carter, the costume designer. I mean, first of all, the trailer is like two minutes, right? So we've all just seen like floop, 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 like quick little snippets. But Jesus peace, the costumes, the like, I mean. Oh, my soul. The accents. I think what I'm going to do when this movie comes out, I'm going to study these fake accents and I'm going to develop one. Because one of the things that happens as a prominent black person, Mm -hmm. you adopt, you adopt. We're going to lay hands on you. We're going to lay hands on you. Or Mm. Lena Horne. Whitney Houston. Tina Turner. No, not Whitney. Whitney did not get no. Yes, she did. Tina Turner. Oh, yes, she did. Did she? She did speak differently. I, I don't think... As, as she didn't speak like she, she was, was from Brick City. <laughs> I just, I just watched. I'm a Whitney Houston expert now because I just watched the highly acclaimed <laughs> Lifetime movie starring Yaya. And so, and so you Gwen. know that she, you know she had an accent or an affected mm, whatever you want to. But, but call I think it. it's different than when, like, I think when we think about, like, for me, the person who's like the person in my head is like James Baldwin, like created a transatlantic like like that is was not found that voice was not found in nature james like <laughs> that's what that's what i'm gonna do while i'm in europe that's what tina I'm doing turner I'm, too. while i'm in europe i'm gonna test accents different tina places. turner you from nutbush mississippi that ain't, i mean nutbush tennessee no my favorite tina turner quote is when gail asked her if she had any regrets and tina said when i look out across lake zurich i tina what <laughs> 
when she looks out across Lake Zurich and her hey, accent, hey, 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 because hey, she lives in, she lives in Switzerland. Let her, let oh, her no, be. I, I am living my life to be like Tina Turner. <laughs> we all know this. And the accent. I want to also live in Europe <laughs> and not and have people leave no, me it's alone. It's a superpower to um to acquire to transcend. To, no, to acquire no. I think it's a superpower to acquire wealth and power. Into he said and, no. And to, said no. no into, <laughs> into not into not cold like and not cold as powerful to be like I still sound. Miles, no, I disagree. I completely what? disagree. Absolutely no. That's I'm with you, Miles. I'm with you. I want to be rich, powerful, and sound and look regular. And not to, I don't want to be. No, I'm going to talk differently, and I'm going to walk differently, and it's going to be a very slow monotone. But you could do that and be black, because little Kim, because those those matching those matching <laughs> no, yes. fur bikinis no. didn't come in nature in the hood either. So you could still be different and still be <laughs> Negroy. <laughs> Yes. yes, I agree with that. That's what I'm saying. These black women that have, you know, and 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 James Baldwin who have developed these accents. We are That's we are I'm we are creators of culture. This is what we do. We remix. We take things from other people and we make it our own. That's one of our superpowers. Okay, well that that superpower wait, is what got we, Megan staying at Tyler Perry house. So just ooh, just ooh, keep ooh, a, wait keep wait a, say more. What happened? The making the making um the princess. She got kicked out of the palace. She had to start stay at the Meghan Markle. Oh, Markle. Meghan Markle. No, she wasn't doing her ad. Had she been doing her accent, she was. <laughs> that's how she right. got into the. That's how she got into the um into the palace is by doing the accent, and then she ended up having to go to Tyler Perry's house. But if she just stayed there. They wouldn't have messed with her like that. <laughs> they wouldn't have messed with her like that. They would have been a little scared. But she switched it up and sound fancy. <laughs> cousin, cousin Megan. Okay, cousin on to the news. On to the news. My news this week is from. Russia and the Ukraine, as you know, there is a war happening right now. And I found this article in the Washington Post that is curious, really, really interesting. And um, I think a harbinger for where we might end up being in these United States of America. The title of the article, I'm just going to read it to you straight, is Russia Sending Teachers to the Ukraine to Control What Students Learn. The Kremlin is promising teachers big money to prepare schools in Ukrainian regions it forces its forces now occupy. And so what the long story short is, is the Russian government is promising big money to Russian teachers who will go to the occupied regions of the Ukraine and correct the education of the student of the Ukrainian students. Um, basically teaching the history that Russia wants to teach. Does this sound familiar? Florida and all of these other places that are passing anti-CRT and what is accurate history kinds of legislation. What is happening is the average monthly salary for these regions that are close to Ukraine is about $550. But the prospective salary looks more like $2,900 a month. Um, and that is like, whatever, like four or five times the amount that you would make if you just stayed in Russia. Um, they are transporting teachers to the Ukraine for free. They are under discussion about providing free accommodations and food. So get this, you about to get four times your salary free transportation to your new job, a house, food, 
the whole nine, all of you go and teach the Russification um, of the Ukrainian education system. And so what's happening is um, there are a lot of teachers who are on the one hand worried about the content and the implications of this, but they're also, and they say there's nothing good is gonna come from this, this is not okay, da 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 da. However, there are also a lot of teachers who are interested in picking up, getting a new life, and making a whole lot of money in the meantime. The Kremlin has not only targeted schools in the Ukraine, um, but they've also blocked Ukraine's cell phone networks and media in the areas that it has taken over. And they're even trying to get Ukrainians to sign up for Russian passports. So like this is a thing to look at over there in Europe while this war is going on. Um, but what I would submit to you is that the way you control the people is through their educational system. And if you are not paying attention to what's happening with education in the United States, um, then you're missing out on what is really happening. We say all the time, nobody wants to talk about education. You know, Abbott Elementary is a huge hit and people are shocked because for years in the entertainment industry, they were like, there would never be a successful schools, you know, uh, show about schools. Nobody wants to talk about education. But in fact, what we're seeing in the, on the educational landscape across the United States and in the Ukraine and in Russia is that, in fact, the way you impact a generation around what they think is through the education system. It's why all of these state legislatures, mostly in red states, are closely restricting what kids are learning in school and what kids are not learning in school. Um, and so, you know, you can take education for granted. It doesn't matter if you have kids in school or you don't have kids in school. What happens in education actually happens across society. And so I brought this to the pod because I thought it was interesting that in a place where war is happening, where one country is seeking to control another country, um, one of the most important ways that they're going to do that is through education. Kai, this was fascinating to me. And I was talking to a professor not too long ago, and he was talking about how Russia's involvement in usurping and undermine other cultures goes really deep and you know, how they wrap themselves around using racial animus in these in these elections here in the United States more recently, but also during the civil rights movement. But one of the things that you said that really struck me was not only it is about the control of education, but it's also the dismantling of it. That with one of the things that we see the Republicans doing here is like, just get rid of the whole, like the only people who get an education and can read and write are rich people. We'll get rid of the Department of Education. We'll essentially make it so hard that like teachers, like no sane person can work there or want to work there. So then you have the poorest people, the darkest people essentially fending for themselves or left with these structures that like don't actually do a thing. Not just left with these structures. Sorry, Dere, but I don't know if you saw yeah. recent news out of Florida is that um, Governor DeSantis and his friends just passed legislation that any military veteran or their spouse can teach for five years, they can apply for a waiver and teach for five years without any certification, without any preparation whatsoever. So not really. Only, what? Let me tell you. Um, I posted it on Twitter. I think we can put it on the pod. But literally, wow. any random army person, any random marine, and I'm not. I am not by any means 
like casting aspersions on our military. Our military are experts in a whole lot of things, but they and their spouses may or may not be experts in how to teach kids. And so I think part of the dismantling of the system is anybody can do this job. Let's let anybody do it. And when the only people left in the system are poor people, black and brown people, then it's okay because we voucherize the system so that rich people can take their money and take it where they want it to go. And all that's left in the crumbling education system are people who don't have other options and they're taught by people who don't have clear experience. That is where we're headed. I just learned something new. I don't really have anything to add on this one except for it's depressing and a foreshadowing of what is going to happen even more here in the United States. Yeah, I'm doubling that. <laughs> um, I mean, so my news, it takes us in a completely different, sort of weird direction. So I saw this headline and it grabbed my attention. Henry Louis Gates Jr. to oversee new Oxford Dictionary of African-American English. Huh? First of all, Oxford Dictionary, leave us alone. Second of all, Henry Louis Gates, what you gonna do with the language of Martha's Vineyard? Like when the last time you've been around some black people that done created some culture of some words? What is going on? Oh, sweet baby Give me Jesus. A break. Pew, 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 pew. What? <laughs> that don't make no sense to me. But anyway, they got all this grant money and they're gonna come up with this dictionary. Um, Mellon and Wagner Foundations are um, contributing to this project, to the, the research of it. Um, you know, Henry Louis Gates serves as director of Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Um, and this is a new joint venture with Oxford University Press. So, and let's, let's see, let's see. Okay, so though many words that were originally or predominantly used by black Americans are, not, are now commonly found among the larger U.S. population, such as woke and hip. America has long looked down on black English, associating it with poverty and crime due to racist stereotypes. What? But it's also like once Oxford Dictionary takes it, it's like BET and Viacom. Once Oxford Dictionary takes it, then, then who's, are they still our words? Are then like, or is it like a, and also why can't our words just be in the regular dictionary? Why we need a black dictionary? What's the cover of that book going to look like? <laughs> and I think a part, I think part of what makes black language, African-American language, uh, I guess like interesting and also what it makes it uh uh, like real to me is the fact that it doesn't have the qualifiers that other like languages have like dictionaries and like rules it's just, it's, it's just an intuitive thing it's an improvised thing even when I think about like Jamaicans and Patois like it's it's something that's like once you put it in a in a book then you're trying to like turn academic what is supposed to that is a little bit more intuitive and also <laughs> I think this is a great um, example of how you, to me, in my opinion, you could, a uh, black person could be a culture vulture of black culture. Because I think that if this had to have happened, or if this was, if this was really interesting for people to examine and to explore, then you would m maybe hire or make the head of it somebody who's actually been disenfranchised because of the language they use. So like a person who's coming to my, um, 
uh, I guess they're not coming to my mind because they just like lost my mind. But there's so many rappers and so many people who are part of the um, part of the culture who have created things and creative language that have been shunned or named uh, less scholarly or smart or sophisticated. And now that this is being examined, to me, it would make sense for them to be the he- ahead of it instead of somebody who, like you so eloquently put Dara, <laughs> Dara, I think somebody who seems to be a, have a little distance between what they're um, creating a product around, you know? I do this, uh, so I know Henry Louis Gates and consider him a friend, and uh, the, the, the pushes that people have make a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm always interested in, in the role that historians play and how history is captured and who captured it and who holds it and where it goes. And I, and I do think there's something really interesting about um, what happens when we, when we put Black English in a way that, uh, ele- that like ooh, elevates might not be the right word, but sort of puts it in one place so people can reference it. And the history of it, I think, is really cool. And I am eternally annoyed by that a white man started Urban Dictionary. That will always drive me bonkers. So there's that. Uh, and here the concerns here. And I do think, Miles, I think your push about the beauty of Black talk is that it can be a noun, it can be a verb, it could be like it could actually be all the things. And that's the beauty of it. And like the speaker gets to decide what it is, nobody else. And I think that's really interesting. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what comes of this. I am um, taking in this conversation. And, and it can't be enslaved by Oxford. Like you know, like at any moment, it can't be taken and and this is what it is and nothing else. That's what it's constantly changing and evolving. It like how we speak is jazz. It is improvised. It does take on different um effects and meanings depending on where we are and it, and it, to me it's not to be not to be, you know, wax too poetic about it, but you know, we got here by the water and I feel like our language is reflective of the water and the flow of how we got here and I think trying to tame or trying to leash the ocean is it feels just as ridiculous as trying to put our language in something like the Oxford dictionary. I think it, yeah, a misstep. I'm with you, Miles. Like on the one hand, we say we're going to legitimize African American vernacular by putting it in an Oxford dictionary. Like that might be the biggest oxymoron ever, right? Like and and my question is like who legitimizes african american vernacular like is it when the white academy says oh this is good enough for a dictionary no i mean this thing says that in this article it says our lexicon is the vocabulary that is most imitated and most celebrated like it it is you know 3 out of 5 common patterns of lexical innovation on twitter are associated with African-American English. It is legitimized because everybody uses it. Everybody appropriates it. Everybody whatever. And it doesn't have to be in a dictionary to do that. And so I actually think our power comes from crashing down the institutions that other people have built up to say it's legitimate when it has a dictionary. We ain't had a dictionary the whole entire time. We we ain't had hymn books, but we knew how to sing all of the hymns and everybody knows it, it, it. 
I, like every black church you've ever been to, whether you're in a north, south, east, or west, right? We sing the same songs. We do the thing, same things. When you go to the Caribbean or Africa or South Carolina and you hear the consistencies in the way we talk, right? None of that is written down. And so now, all of a sudden, we're going to grab, you know, a black academic. I'm not even going to talk about Henry Louis Gates. I'm just going to say we're going to grab a black academic and get him to put a box around this thing that can't be boxed. That isn't like that's not how we that's not how we do. I mean, but but I also feel like like I am I'm actually fine with like some artistic expression happening around our language in like an institutional way. Like I am with that. I'm not with Henry Louis Gates being the person to do that. In another article I found, he said, words with African origins such as goober, gumbo, okra survived the Middle Passage along with our African ancestors. And words that we take for granted today, such as cool, crib, this, hip, what? You, this thing gonna be, it's gonna be a dictionary from 15 years ago. Like he don't even know where to even begin to look to find these words. And so I feel like that's, that's the that's the, the the pull for me is that it's it's him doing it means that he that it is being done for white people. This isn't for us. It's being done for white people. And that is that that's that's the rub for me. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I and and you know, no disrespect to him, Louis Gates, you know, he's helping the black the white people find that their ancestors were slaves on the PBS. Uh, wonderful. The PBS. But I just feel like <laughs> But I just feel like this is like, this is my my own kind of issue and all the things I have going on with the black elite. Because I think oftentimes they do things that are for white people because they are so disconnected from culture. They are so disconnected from what's what's happening in community. What makes me sad is that we'll see what I'm the biggest Toni Morrison fan ever in this this whole conversation just reminds me of the quote that people love to, you know, proliferate throughout social media when things go wrong or whatever. But I'm like, you're not actually digesting it because the the question is, if we're really talking about the white gaze, this is a perfect example. Legitimate to whom? Who are we trying to legitimize ourselves for? For what reason? And it's, it's, it's a little, it's just, it just, it does rub me that I don't, I definitely don't mean any disrespect to Henry Louis Gates because I'm just not a disrespectful person, but I think I, it, it does feel severely irresponsible on an individual level that somebody who upholds so much respectability, who has distanced themselves um, as a black elite from the people who really have created this language, that now you're able to create, um, not even just like money wealth, but like social wealth by uh, by by being in control and being um, and, and being the, the the head of what what is black language is what's not. It just that if it, it feels like again culture vulture. It feels it feels it feels predatory. Like it feels yeah. whack. It's <laughs> probably a word that will be in there. It feels <laughs> Diara. Delete Diara. Oh my tomato, tomato, tomato. I do think uh well, what this conversation highlights too is what um what it means that there's a thing that we all participate in and people feel a lot of ways about it. So I'm hopeful that he will listen and take the feedback. And you know, part of the beauty of blackness is that black is interactive and that 
we sort of like push and fight and da 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 because the thing that we participate in and make is so beautiful and so strong. Uh, he said that check is cash and y'all can stay mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. It is a good day to be black. It's a good day to be loud. It's a good day to be big. Why? Because Monique won her case. It got settled. She's going to be on Netflix. And she got a movie coming with Lee Daniels. Will I be watching any of those things? Probably not. Because I want to continue to like Monique. And I'm not a big fan of who she's collaborating with. That, But that does not mean I don't want to see her win. <laughs> But I, I can't take the risk because how com- black comedians are handling the queer and trans moment of today's time. I, I'm not going to pretend like I think that Monique is going to hit it on the head. Um, and that's okay. But I was, in the, I was in the trenches with my auntie Monique for years. You could ask DeRay. And I feel deeply vindicated that not only did she settle with Netflix, Netflix gave her a special, and then she um, is going to be doing a film on Netflix with Lee Daniels. And to me, that what that says is, but how difficult was I really? If, 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 we, if we can arrive at that. How loud was I really? How, how, how black bolt was I really? So it shows you how much lies and how much, um, and, and how people's cowardice can really change narratives more than what actually has happened. And I just deeply love that it's happening. I love that Strong Black Lead presented it and rolled it out. I love that the first thing that she said was, um, can y'all believe this, um, SH? Like, because like, like, that to me is Monique's superpower is that she is able to um, maybe like the antithesis of a, of a Mr. Gates or, or Dr. Gates and be able to, this the antithesis, she's able to anticipate what like the an elite black person is thinking when they see something and she just took it right my mouth. She's like, can y'all believe this? Um, this, this, sh-. <laughs> and just looked around and said, I got a special on Netflix and I have a movie coming and I'm just so, I'm so happy about it. And then also the thing that, you know, if I could, I would have like an instrumental of Lift Every Voice playing as I say this. It shows you that you can stand for something firmly and still get something in your lifetime. And I think for black people, standing for something, no matter how important it seems or how unimportant it seems, standing for something has also been forfeiting your ambition, forfeiting your success. And I love that she standed, she she standed flat footed in it. She says she says some disparaging things to DL Hughley. She 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 she, she used her she she won wrong. She won wrong, no. But she took well, she took her swings. Not Diara coming out out of the sideways. <laughs> and she she swung and she 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 kept on swinging and she still got what she deserved. And you know, you know, my my little my little 
Baptist grandmas in my ear being like, what God got for you, nobody can take away. Because apparently God had for Miss Monique uh, uh, a Netflix special and a movie. I don't think Kaya sold, boo. Huh? I don't think Kaya sold. Like, I'm just saying, because you weren't sold the first time either, but it was, Miles is giving a hard sell, which you got to respect. It's not a, the, the, the special was sold. (laughs) <laughs> the film has been sold. It has been sold. These are now. Fun. If you now listen, if you want to take it to the point where I don't know how big individual celebrity advancement is when it comes to the advancement of Black people. Actually, I know how big it is. It's minuscule, but that is just what it is. But if we're here talking about culture and politics and stuff like that, I think that this is a big deal because I do think that people who have done what Monique has done have been maligned and have been shut down and you'll never hear from them again because they decide to do stuff. We are, this is, we're not, we're a couple of generations out of the generation that exile Eartha Kitt, you know, and, 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 and told many a black woman that you'll no longer have a career, even when you're found out that you're right and we're all making these things and Ava DuVernay finds who you looked like 50 years ago and puts you in a movie and all this other stuff, we're still not going to give you a career. We're still not going to say sorry. Like, we're still, you're still, you're still out of it. And I think that it's just amazing that within a, maybe like a 10-year span, she's been able to be flat-footed in her beliefs, be bold, not cold switch, sound like she's from Baltimore, say what she got to say, let everybody know that Charlemagne's real name is Leonard, and that, and, and also still get her, her money. It's a miracle to me. To me. Miracles are an individual event, and that was a miracle to me. <laughs> a big, black, loud miracle. Well, I just, I feel like if anyone has any doubts around the genius of Monique, take an afternoon <laughs> and watch Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins. Because my boy directed that joke. She, mm-hmm. mm. that don't do no, every haunt ain't hilarious. Uh-uh. Miles, it's okay. No, I was she, no, I was saying I, that was a celebratory. Um, uh, okay, See, all right, I'll take. Well, the where's, where's, where's Doctor Gates so we can um differentiate the uh, <laughs> so we can translate. So that was that was, affir- that was affirming. Uh, I was like, it was like a. Mm. Kai said, "That's my friend, and we could go to blows." No, that was an affirming. Listen, mm, like a like, that's ooh. great. Yes. I, Shout I out love to my movie. boy Malcolm well, Lee. If y'all him, love Best Man, I, if you love Space Jam, if you love whatever, whatever. Okay, so I did. Genius. I did. I did. I do. I do. That Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins, is first of all, it's just, it's, I, I should be Oscar nominated. So I just, I, I think we forget, we forget how funny Monique is and how. You know, we had the kings of comedy and, you know, we had all the, you know, all the black men who joined together to be able to do these big shows and all that. And that support was never really extended to black women comics. Right. Like, I think we've, we've seen, you know, we've seen them come up over over the years. But Monique ended up winning an Oscar on them. You know that you know D.L. Hewley was mad. She got an Oscar. Whoop whoop. That's, is that, Hewley ain't is that what got, this is all about? He got like is a, that what this is all about? Yes. I don't even know if he has an image. That explains award. a I don't lot. Know what DR, he has. That explains a lot. But I'm telling you, like there and Miles, I'm with you. Like I feel like she, she has, she's just been steadfast, and her, ta- she is so talented, so talented. So just, to, I just, I think about like. Monique being, you know, darker skin, being bigger, being all these things in Hollywood and like the opportunity she would have had 
if if Hollywood wasn't a racist, awful place. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's wild to me. It's wild to me. And this special is going to be hilarious, obviously. And to be clear, she has an Academy Award, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, and a Screen Actors Guild okay. Award. Okay. Just so we know. I don't have no shade for Monique, and I'm glad that she's getting her due. I think I don't want us to act like Hollywood has all of a sudden done the right thing, right? Like, no. So she sued Netflix three years ago, right? We don't know the terms. Uh, they settled in June, June, this July right now, right? They settled in June for an undisclosed sum, and voila, she has a special. They did listen. They ain't do right. That was part of the settlement, is my guess, right? That restoration means not just the cash money or whatever the undisclosed sum is, but that they have a, they had a responsibility. Um, they had some accountability in tearing her down. And so she probably negotiated that you're going to have to build me back up and help me reestablish my platform. So I, I'm happy that Monique is getting her coins and her props and all of that jazz. But I don't want us to act like Hollywood done figured it out. No. And we're not still blacklisting people because we are. And, you know, it's that you still can't say the right thing. She just got some good lawyers. She had a bunch of people who were on her side who helped her to create some critical mass around whatever. And I'm happy for her. But Hollywood is still out here. I'm about to get kicked out the Amplified Conference at CAA, I'm sure, or whatever it is. But I'm just saying everybody ain't <laughs> The Hollywood ain't out here doing all the things for all the people still. So we have to keep on holding them accountable. And if I made it seem like I was like uh, I was not praising Hollywood, I was kind of praising the 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 tenacity and the and the dedication of Monique and the sophistication yes. of Monique because I yes. just feel like I've not in my lifetime I can only think of I cannot think of a lot of people who are black women who were as famous as she was who have who who went against a machine like that and then have made that same machine that destroyed her say oh you're also going to re- rehabilitate me so you're going to pay me and you're also going to re- rehabilitate me in the public side too and do this simultaneously and she did do that and it happened in her lifetime cuz like i said a lot of times we'll be like oh wow i guess okay she we love moms Mabley now. Okay, I guess she Eartha Kitt did make a point. Okay, you know, it's it, and but they're dead, or they're or or they're pa- or they're past the years where they would you know viably want to like work and 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 do all this media stuff again. So I I just think that it was like really cool to see. You know, I am. What I love about Monique is this idea of she gets to choose what fame means for her, and I do think for so many people, fame is how high or how close to whiteness can you get? How many billionaires can you meet? How many exclusive parties can you get to? How Like that is what fame has become normal. Or like how much money can you just accrue regardless of how you accrue it, right? It's just the, it's the, it's the accrual money in and of itself. And she sort of put us, like when she came out against Oprah, I was like, oh, we are really, we are fighting, right? It was like, it was a, a righteousness. Uh, Dio Hughley was one thing, but Oprah felt like a very different person to publicly criticize. And she was just like, I think I've been wrong. And there is a part of that, a huge part that you just have to respect. And she just stood in it. And I think that uh, she was not popular at the beginning when she said that. Black people even were like, girl, it's too much. Let it go. Stop complaining. Da, 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 da. And she's like, right is right. And I, 
there see to me there's like a ten toes a ten toes down a sense of groundedness that said that like here's my gift here's who I am, and I I'm cool with that I can like stand in that and you ain't gotta love it but this is me which feels very much like Baltimore, but also it is cool to see a celebrity do that and not let something go in the process so I didn't see her like go for a blackness or distance herself or embrace whiteness or white conventions to do even the disruption that she did. And the other thing that I really respected about her, because I like appreciated some of it, but what I respected was her apology. So when she went after DL's daughter and she publicly said that was too much, it's like, we actually don't see enough apology in the space because you can be right about the big thing and wrong about some of the other stuff. And we sort of just say that in private, da, 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 but she, like, it is an adult to say like, you know what? That was like, I still hate you and I shouldn't have included your daughter. And to say that publicly in the midst of fighting people is a real model. My news, I know, you know, Kai doesn't like jails. uh, So we don't talk about a lot of jails, but I couldn't lose it. So it's hot. If you don't live in a place that's hot, it's hot in every place that I know people right now in the United States. It's hot in New York. It's hot in Baltimore. I don't know if it's hot where you are. Dr. I don't know where you are. Are you home, Dr. I'm actually, yes, I'm actually home. Oh, but it, just for a couple more days. It's hot, hot in D.C. And this uh, article was about um, the temperatures in jails in Texas. So there's a big deal with Rikers, too. Rikers is the, the jail in New York. It's also really hot. But the Texas Department of Criminal Justice said that the average temperature of a housing unit that does not have air conditioning in June was 89 degrees. The average for the first 11 days of July was 91.4 degrees in that there were reports um, at at least one of the facilities um, that it reached over 110 degrees and topped out at 149 degrees in at least one unit. Jail is already bad enough. Being separated from society is already bad enough. But the idea that it is 149 degrees in a, in a unit is so wild. And Texas is one of 13 states that does not have air conditioning in the prisons. Even in New York City, Rikers is the biggest jail. The only fully air conditioned building in all of New York City Department of Corrections is the boat. None of the actual buildings are um, air conditioned. And of the states, the state of Texas, nearly 100 prison facilities, 70% do not have air conditioning at all. So when we talk about cruel and unusual, when you talk about what torture looks like, people think about waterboarding and some of the obvious stuff, right? People don't often think enough about what it's like to lock people in cages and, and let the heat rise to 150 degrees. And you know who did have air conditioning? The guards. You know who does have air conditioning? The wardens. Those people are not sitting in anybody's room in 150 degrees with no fans or no air conditioners. They're not. This is torture. And at the very least, we should let people out. I mean, it just it doesn't make sense to me because this is a nation that incarcerates. It's a business. And that's just not a good business practice. So I feel like if we're, if this is our culture, if this is where, this is, you know, deray, you know, talk about abolitionism, I just feel like these people, they're so far from that. And, and to, to, to have institutions like this that just get that hot 
it is cruel and unusual punishment, like 100%. It is torture. So I just don't understand. Like, I guess for me, it's like trying to think of their philosophy around why the, what the thing is and why they're doing it. It doesn't make sense to me to not have air conditioning. Um, but I guess it does make sense when you think about Texas and think about the Deep South um, and what prisons really evolved from, legacy of slavery. So in that regard, it, it all makes sense. But Duray, when that, when that, when it's like, if you're, if you had a family member that was there, that was an extreme heat, like what recourse is there? Is there none? Like, do you write a letter to somebody or do you, does your attorney like then, you know, file something with the court that says it is a viol- it is cruel and unusual punishment? I'm just trying to think like, that's the process. We we have reports of people at Rikers um, swallowing batteries and engaging in self harm. So they will just they will the the jail will have to move them because they'll get put on suicide watch or they'll get put somewhere where they just are not in the unit anymore. Like that'll be a way to to get out, um, which is wild, right? Making people make inhumane choices so they don't roast. Uh, inside of a small cell. And let me tell you, the biggest, you know, people will be like, well, jail is the punishment. The biggest quote cells I've seen are closets, are tiny and big is like the toilet, the sink, and your live and like the bed all in one. None of this is big. So being trapped in general is bad, but being in a place where there's no, and remember there's no windows, right? So it's not like natural air, right? It's not like natural air is coming through and, and like the air condition is a luxury. It's like we put you in a closet with over a hundred degree. That's not right. Yeah. And and that's and I think it just like to your point, there, I think it does um highlight the mentality behind people who imprison people is because you don't you do see prisoners as because what do you treat like that? You treat something like that you can replace. So like we know as a society, we keep on socializing people and to to in creating these spaces for people to get to prison and either through criminality or through other things that are that are not criminal and just other modes of exploitation. So there's never going to be a deficit of people who can become prisoners. So your death in, in your and in, in, in your death doesn't matter. And I think that's the sad part about it is that the, these lives in here don't matter. I truly and I know this has been said like a million times in general and specifically on this um, podcast, but I really do think that the prison system is the just the this most heinous thing that America is like currently doing right next to us. Like it's it it really to me is just the sum of everything horrendous about America's present and 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 past happening right next door to public citizens. It's just uh it's, I mean, this is, uh, like you said, I don't like jails. <laughs> that might be the understatement of the year. Like, I'm <laughs> deathly afraid of every anything that has to do with jail. Like, it gives me nightmares. I'm clear that in a past life or something, I must have been. I'm like, what have you done? There's, there's no rational reason for me to be, like, I can't watch jail stuff on TV or movies or whatever. So I feel like something traumatic in a past life must have happened in jail. But like, the reason is because it is, it is like, I, I believe deeply in social contract, right? Like, these are the rules that we follow. This is how we treat people. And jail is none of that. Like it is, there is no way, just like substitute school, hospital, 
you know, courtroom, any public institution. And there's no way that we would let anything get to 149 degrees. Like, we just wouldn't, right? And so, like, everything in it's like topsy-turvy world, right? Everything in jail is not the way it is supposed to be. And I don't understand how we as, like, civilized people allow, like, I, I just, and I have friends who, like, work inside the correctional system, many of whom are advocates and and have tried to work within the system to change the system. Um, and it's complicated and all of that. But like this, this to me is like reason number 1,995,000 around why I can't mess with jail. Like how do you let people sit in 149 degrees? We are all in our various places right now, sweating up storms, no matter where we are in America, in Europe, in whatever. And people are sitting in closets in 149 degree weather and harming themselves so that they get a chance to go to an air conditioned room. Like, who are we as a people? Like, I hate it here sometimes. I really do. And this, like, it's things like this that, like, make me think, what in the world? Yeah, no. That's what happens when you have a nation that truly believes that they're to me like above god they they create their own hells and like that to me prison is that is the reflection of that like almost like how dare you like say something like have the kind of like language you have and about god and being under god and christian stuff and how how and how dare you have that on and i have that going on it's ridiculous i'm just gonna show you this because we're here but on Riker, we have a whole campaign about Rikers. And on Rikers, they are um, putting people incarcerated in shower cages that they are saying is for decontamination, but they're keeping them in the cages uh, for hours. What are, c- contaminated with what? Um, Black skin? What What do you let mean? Let me show you that. It's, it's one of those things that when you see it, like telling you is not enough. I'm going to have nightmares tonight. Wow. Stop it. Stop. Stop. Stop, so Ray. This is the shower. And you stay in there for how long? So one of the um, one of the guys was in here for a couple hours. No. Then we no. have photos of it. But look at this. Look at... That's a shower. You what see the shower head? What are they head? doing in there? What are they doing? That's not a shower. That's a cage for an animal is what it is. And that's how come... I know this is going to sound like a stretch, but, you know, um, art and culture. That's how come I'm really against, like... And love these artists to love these artists. Like nothing personally against them. I think we all have like missteps or maybe it's not a misstep to them or whatever. But like Lady Gaga in the telephone video, Little Nas X in their video in prison. Prison's not pink. There's no choreography. And and, and I think that if you are an ally to black people at Lady Gaga, if you are somebody who's actually black and somebody who looks like you, Little Nas X, will actually has more of a chance of experiencing prison, it's important to not romanticize. You are adding to the propaganda without even knowing it. Because I'm sure a prison system or a police person didn't tell you to do that. It's just coming from your own colonized imagination to create something that is homoerotic or... Um, romantic or absurd and, and 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 surreal about the prison system. We that it, that is that that will be the mist art that will be seen as a, a artistic misstep of a generation to make a joke out of something or make something um, artistic and fluffy out of to me what is like the crime of our generation, which is the prison system. Uh, he was in there for six and a half hours. 
And the quote is, acting warden Harvey was touring the area and discovered Mr. Muhammad in the shower cage with the ligature around his neck. Muhammad survived the apparent attempt to harm himself, but the Board of Correction email questioned the prolonged use of a shower stall to keep him confined. Quote, what makes his placement particularly alarming is that he was not sprayed with chemical spray, so there was no need for a decontamination shower. One month after his confinement to that shower, Muhammad was found unresponsive in another cell. He's actually the latest death at Rikers. Um, and I did not know that he was actually in one of these shower cages before that. Um, and what was he in? What was he in for? Allegedly stealing a Snickers bar or something stupid? Yeah, I think it was like petty theft. It's called a, they call that also a shower or a de-escalation unit. Insane. And no matter what, because at the time we don't have the information, I just, you, you know, I'm always about this. Like, no matter what he was in prison for. Jail, jail, jail. Oh, excuse me, whatever. I, I'm, I'm bad at that. I'm like, it's all, I'm in a, I'm behind a bar. Um, <laughs> but like, um, no matter what um, he was in jail for. Wait, but in, oh, sorry, but prison is, is, more extreme than jail, right? I'm, I know I'm being overly simplistic with it. Prison is post-conviction. Right. And is a year or more. Jail is a year or less and is more than 90% pre-conviction. So what we're just witnessing with the showers is in jail. He has not been convicted of a crime. Correct. He's being held until his trial. That's right. Except Which, he's not going to have a trial because he done took himself out because we have terrorized him. Not we, not me, mm-hmm, not uh-uh, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I'm like you treat yeah. it like like that looks like something that look that if if that situation had a polar bear in it or any type of animal that you could find Ooh, at the Bronx Miles, Zoo, a dog, just a plain they'd old be, dog, they'd be protesting. Yes. Okay? there would there would be, be protesting in yes. the streets. What I'll say it. Listen, that is that's ridiculous, and for it to be in like you know, I'm being educated on the differences in real time. Hopefully, with somebody else, but to, for that to be happen before you're convicted, not to even say that that justifies it once you get convicted, because I think humanity should never, as long as you're a human, you should always be granted humanity. Um, but the fact that that's happening before conviction, so technically this person's still innocent until proven guilty and this is how you treat the innocent oh my goodness what happens when you think of somebody in, um guilty and we know because we see the statistics and we hear the story that's disgusting and diara's question around so what happens now like there is no justice for this cat who one who do you call right and what how do you make change happen and even if you are able to get some justice for him it's too late because he's no longer with us and that's that is the thing that like super freaks me out all of the things that happen in 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 the correctional facilities are terrible but like the lack of accountability the lack of justice the you can't even raise your hand and be like this is wrong let's fix this like there, there seems to be no recourse. That, to me, is the most hopeless thing about the carceral system, like that trumps all else. This is this is the job of if there's any use, and you know, you can guess where I stand on this. There being any use, but there's any use of having black billionaires and having the black elite and having the, and having all these people who are able to integrate and maneuver through these systems, if this is not at the core of why, of what you're trying to uh, 
advocate for and talk about and use your power and your wealth for, then it's truly useless to me. It's truly useless. And and I'm like, if if you can't get your Frederick Douglass on in this moment. And I, Miles, I agree. And I also think this is, it's like a mental health crisis that we're having in this country too, right? And these jails, prisons are not equipped. Police officers, no one is equipped to respond to mental health crisis, right? But they're called to do it all the time or they're face-to-face with it all the time. When I was a prosecutor in Miami, the jail there in Dade County, they kept the top floor freezing cold. And that that they did that because that's where they put all the mentally ill people. And so they didn't want them to get manic and act out. So they kept it freezing, right? Like those aren't, that's not a solution, you know what right. I mean? That's not, they're, they're so, and, and the thing is like these places weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't set up with good intention. So I think part of it is like we have, now we have these millions of people in the system and it's just, how, how do you make it right. right? How do you make people care? How do you make people be more empathetic? How do you get more healthcare professionals and mental health? We can't even, we just, co- we covered the story where people's teeth are jacked up. You, they ain't worried about your teeth. They ain't worried about your mind. None of it. And I, and I'm like resistant to like the the, the terms that sometimes we use. Like, and I'm not, like this is not like a like a critique to you, Diara. But in my head, I think about when I hear like, oh, this is a mental health crisis and stuff like that. Um, what is the human psyche supposed to do? When when encountering a black the, the trajectory of a black life, unless like a black life truly has a intervention from poverty, a, like a, I will call it a divine intervention from poverty from 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 it, then right. what else would the what would else would a psyche do when presented with all the things that a black life is presented with? But go left to what we to skew left from what we call a uh, um uh, a, a, a scene, you know. So I like to me, I'm like what. And you're in a mental health crisis as soon as you, like when you're on that bus to Rikers, you're in a mental health crisis, right? And like we're seeing now, there was a story the other day I saw, Dre, I think you sent it to me or on one of the chains we're on about somebody literally jumping off of a building as they're running from the police because they don't want to go to Rikers. Like. Yeah, that sounds sounds about right. Like Like it just, to me, I just think sometimes we're just so a little bit like immature about thinking about what what the human psyche is actually built to withstand and when and when people right. act That's when right, people Miles. act naturally of how anybody responds in those situations we say like well we need more you you can't therapize that <laughs> this is the, no. somebody living in a cage you can't therapize that you can that's not how that works child not you got me heated up on a sunday Oh gosh! You know we're about to do we're about to do a big uh, an action in New York City about Rikers, and so I think about Rikers a lot. But I don't know why seeing this picture again um, just like enraged me all the more. And it's like our political leaders—you should either have to defend or denounce. That's it. That should be like the only two. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because people are right in the middle, and they're like, "Oh, I," and I can't tell you. I've talked to elected officials at literally every level about Rikers. And the number of people who it says something publicly is really low, but it's like, if your daughter, sister, cousin, brother was in that shower thing, there is no call you wouldn't make. There is no press conference you wouldn't do. There's no person you wouldn't fight. You know what I mean? And that's just, that ain't right. Ridiculous. 
ridiculous. Uh, full circle, not making jest, but full circle is my favorite Monique special is I Could Have Been Your Cellmate, where she goes and visits the all-woman prison and she has interviews with them. That's what I'm talking she about. Has, and she, she did That's interviews with them. About. She talks to them about what they did, tells them their stories, as well as entertains the, pr- the prisoners. Um, and really, and really, in every reframe, she says, I could have been your cellmate. I could have been right next to you. Really, like, creating humanity between, yes, you're here and I'm here, but one bad decision and I could be right where you at. So I'm going to, in the meantime, forget about what you did and I'm going to entertain you and, you know... Don't go anywhere. More Podsing the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This week, D.R. Walgo's political strategist Valerie Biden on the pod to chat about her new book, Growing Up Biden, a memoir. Yes, Valerie Biden is the sister of President Joe Biden. Now, many of you are familiar with DR's past work with the Obama administration and our overall political expertise. So it was great to hear these two incredible women uh, talk and provide insight on the many topics being discussed at dinner tables across the country. I'm excited to share this one. Here we go. Y'all, welcome again to Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. And today we have such a special and incredible person, Valerie Biden Owens, who's joining us today. Um, so we're going to get into who she is Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. and what that has meant for our lives um, as people that are now living, you know, living and being guided by the Biden administration. So Valerie, we're very, very happy to have you. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. There's a lot of other things you could be doing on this beautiful July afternoon. So I appreciate your taking the time to to uh, speak with me. So what can I tell you, my dear? What You know, folks have context of me and my background on this podcast, you know, working a long time. Well, I guess that's relative. I didn't definitely wasn't a part of seven Senate campaigns as you were in winning them, but worked a, a significant amount of time, let me say, in democratic politics. I worked on two presidential campaigns, worked in the Obama administration, worked primarily, as everyone knows, for Hillary Clinton, which, you know, there's no shortage of crisis management there. So I think when I was reading your book and just learning more about you, I think what was most powerful to me has been your role in democratic politics and your role in running and managing campaigns. And I was, you know, I I was, I, I was, was surprised that I hadn't, that I didn't know more, that I hadn't known this and that it really wasn't a part of kind of the, the, the political narrative when it comes to women, particularly given how many more women are actually running. I guess kind of what does that say to you? Some, you know, that, you know, my experience in democratic politics that I just hadn't come across your story yet, your story. Well, in, in 1972, when I started out and Joe ran for the first Senate race. He was elected when he was 29. So I was 
27. Mm. He was, he, he's the first Senator that he and I ever met. Um, I mean, right. you know, we right. knew our opponent, but we knew no one in power. We had no influence. We had no structured democratic party. Matter of fact, we were more a Southern segregated party. Uh, and, uh, we, we just had the, we had a vision and we had a passion and we had a commitment and we had the best candidate to run for the right. U.S. Senate. And the reason right. we ran was uh, to stop the war in Vietnam, to continue mm. the struggle for civil rights, and to protect planet Earth. We, I believe we were one of the first campaigns ever to mention the environment. So in 1972, when this happened, uh, my, my brother, honest and true, has been my best friend my entire life. I opened my eyes and it seemed that he was there and he put his hand out and he said, come on Val, we've got things to do and places to go and people to see. And off mm -hmm. we went. And he took me with him wherever he went. And, and Diara, his friends would say, why did you bring a girl? And his answer was, she's not a girl, she's my sister. Sister, so, right, I love that in the book, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. he, to he told me that whatever he could do, he said, Valerie, you can do it better. He said, you're smarter than I, you're better looking than I, you're kinder than I, whatever it was. And he gave me such confidence, or tried to instill such confidence in me that I knew that I owed it to him and to myself to try to be that little girl that he thought I could be. So now mm -hmm. back in 1972, when I say there were no, I'm taking brush strokes. There may have been another campaign manager. There may have been another female involved in politics and electoral politics. But for the purposes of reality, there were no, the only women involved in politics were the women who opened the closed headquarters, got the mm. coffee and got right. the office supplies. Right. Uh, since we didn't know any better with no influence, no power, no structure, or party to tell us what to do, he said, I'm going to run for Senate. And he said, you know, you'll be my campaign manager. And I said, Joey, I don't know the first thing in the world about running a statewide campaign. He said, well, that's why we'll be good at it. Well, you know, we'll figure it out because we didn't know what we didn't know. And that's right. really helpful because had I known just as a woman, the unwelcoming environment for women in politics at that time, I would have been a lot more frightened or a lot right. more, you know, concerned, but I didn't know. And so we just dove in and we improvised. And mm -hmm. sometimes limited resources are really a good thing. When you have all the money in the world, you could throw it at doing all the conventional things and hope to come out a winner. When you don't have any money, when you don't have any influence, when you don't have a structured party, you got to think on the spot. And we became, we were PT boats as opposed to ocean liners. So we right. could, we had to learn to pivot on a dime. And we were always in it together. I, because he raised, my parents raised us. I have three brothers. Mm -hmm. And um, our parents told us that we were a gift to one another. And we believed him. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I knew how to complete a sentence most of the time. He got there by Jesuit logic. I got there by intuition, but we both came to the same conclusion. So it was easy because when I spoke, people knew that it was Joe speaking. Right. That was very, I was in it, not because I was such a brilliant, 
woman making a place for women in the world. I was in it by just by default. My big brother was in it and I was going with him and we were going to change things. And we did. And that is probably a long winded Biden answer to whatever your question was. So stop me when well, I'm going off no, the rails. I, well, listen, I think, first of all, I think, you know, we're going to give you a lot more credit than that. And I so I have two brothers who are 27 and 24. We are 13 and 16 years apart. Wow. So I take credit for them all the time. And in fact, the youngest is going to Georgetown Business School in the fall. And the other brother is going to Pepperdine business in the fall. Now, I feel like this is at least 75% because of me. So so you're a much better sister than I, because I'm like, "Mm, yeah, our parents are great. But really, I think that has a lot to do with me. You know, I think it does. My, My brother has always said that every successful man, that he has ever met, not success in terms of how much money you have in the bank or what the title is over your door, but every successful man has had a powerful woman by his side, behind his back, giving him the gentle push, like you can do it, you know, Mm -hmm. whisper in your ear. So it's a mom, a sister, a spouse. And, uh, and I think that that's probably true. You know, strong men are not afraid of strong women. They embrace them and they look to them. That's right. And I think and I, and I think the other similarity and just kind of accessibility point I saw in your book was, you know, how you were raised and your and, and how folks came in and out of the house. So on my mom's side, we're Mexican and very Catholic, but it always was there was always a relative at the house that it yeah. was that was coming to stay for a short time or a long time. But it was I think. I think back on it and I wonder if it's true for you that, you know, kind of why I was good at politics. It's really because I was good with different types of people. Um, And I think that my family had so much and just the there's so many of them that that just had such had something to do with that. I think you're absolutely right. Now, I want to start, though, make a statement from the beginning that in all humility, it was not easy raising an older brother. I mean, I had my hands full, <clears throat> okay, let alone the two younger ones. So that's A. But, you know, my mom and dad told us that when we walked out of the house, uh, we, we, we okay, setting for people who, who are listening who don't know, where you were a middle-class American family, Irish Catholic background, culture, and, and religion, who grew up in mid-20th century America. And I suspect that like many of the people who are who are listening to us today. And what I think that, although the stories of our families are different, the specific, specifics of yours, Mexican-American, mine, Irish, Catholic heritage, but I, I think that the threads that weave the fabric of family together, and that's commitment and loyalty and love yep. And, yep. and heartbreak and disappointment mm. and loss, they're similar in all of our families. I mean, right. those threads run through all of us. And I think that, I, I remember when we left the house, my, my three brothers and I, I mean, we were little kids. And my mom would say, when you walk out that door, just remember, you're Bidens. Mm. And that didn't mean you're Bidens like your Rockefellers or your Kennedys or your whoever big name you want. It meant you're four little kids and you have each other's back. 
right. that's what it is. You're Biden's and you have each other's back. So when we walked out of the house, God forbid we should ever lay a hand on each other. That that would have been out out of completely out of bounds. But if we would ever lay a harsh word on one of them, that would be the greatest disappointment to my parents. So when we got in the house, we were normal four kids, four siblings. And, you know, you hurt my feelings or why did you say that or don't do this? But we we kept it in our house. And Joe started something. Uh, I don't know if in with your brothers, if you did the same thing. He started something when we were in preteens and through through teens. It was a family meeting. And it was there were it was a pure democracy, the four kids. I love this in the book too. <laughs> yeah. And yet my brothers and I, my baby brother actually is the one that convenes us, which is always well, the baby so. baby brothers are in a class all by themselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could spot the youngest boy a mile away. Uh, the, uh, but what we would convene is when one of us had a, had were upset about something. It was usually mm-hmm. because we hurt each other's feelings. Mm-hmm. We would call a family meeting. We had a three bedroom house, just like most of middle class America mm-hmm. did. Mom and Dad had one bedroom. The middle bedroom had two sets of bunks, which are my three brothers and me on the top bunk when. I'm the only girl, so I have my own bedroom. But when mm-hmm. one of these relatives came to stay a weekend right. and they spent a fortnight, they got my room and I got the top bunk. <laughs> and that's where we would have our family meetings and it would be, you know, what's wrong? Well, why did you, you know, Joey, why would you say that in front of Tom? Why would you embarrass me? What did I say? Mm-hmm. And we would, oh, God, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. And we would work it out, the hurt, and and then move on because – like mom said, there's there's family, and then there's family, and then there's family. That's right. what you have in the end. So our our family was raised on the concept of family, faith, and responsibility to take right. care of one another, and then the community at large. That so we, to, you know, I think it was John Kennedy who said, "To those, much is given, much is expected." Well, we weren't given a lot in terms of. Financial. I mean, my dad always had a job and we had an education. That was the key to everything. But the responsibility was to um, mesh with the Irish Catholic tradition of uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, Mm -hmm. and you are your Mm -hmm. brother's keeper. And we were supposed to just not mouth that. That's why it worked that we, the Catholic school, because the Catholic social doctrine that the nuns taught us meshed with the family doctrine that we had. We still to this day believe we're a gift to one another. Yeah. And Valerie, just thinking about that, because I think the other thing that I really enjoyed about this book is just its reminder of American values. I think particularly given in the times we're living in, thinking about the road decision, thinking about, you know, the January 6th, hearings that are happening. And I'm sure like a lot of the listeners find myself kind of hopeless at times, you know, really trying to figure out, are we Ameri- Are we in America who cares for one another? To your point, you know, can, can have conversations with family members and loved ones and people even just kind of strangers on the street around, you know, empathy and, yeah. you know, what happened, you know, COVID has devastated us. And I just, you know, I, I again, I think what I appreciated about the book, it, it warmed my heart in that this is an example of an American family who 
cared for each other, continues to care for each other, has been through has been through so much and has done so much. And yet, you know, it is here still setting that example, I guess. And, and, and given that, you know, you were on the campaign trail, you talked to so many people, I guess what I'm looking for is, is there hope <laughs> that yeah. we are and can continue to be an American, you know, a, 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 an America that cares deeply? For there, are, there, ha- there has to be. And you you nailed the word empathy. And yeah. empathy is a fancy word which means to feel, I'm not in mm. to feel the fabric, but to absorb. Right. And people have, when they, the, the first question that they ask me is, you know, why'd you write the book? It's because I'm a storyteller and, mm. and I think we ha- share so much in common. And what do you want people to get from the book? I, and I, I, I sound like a smart ass. I don't care what you get. From, I mean, I didn't write it as a moral of a story for you to get something from. I wrote it because I'm a storyteller and, and I wanted to write. It's my emotions and my expressions. But yeah. what I would feel really good about, like that I was a real live author, is when you, having read the book, put it down and said, oh, my gosh, she sees me. Uh, mm. That's my mom. Or, or, mm-hmm. I got a brother. Like, that's my brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when we see that there is so much more that keeps us together, then then separates us. And that's not, I don't mean that preachy or moralizing. I mean that if we just take a minute and like put the book down and said, God, I remember that. I, I grew up in a house like that. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe she, you know, she has a point. What, what we've come and this present Congress and the administration, our country has taken that compromise is a dirty word. And, mm-hmm. and I say to the members of Congress, are any of you married? I mean, what the heck are you talking about? Compromise doesn't mean give up your principles. It means just rub off and, and shave those rough spots a little bit and right. realize that, you know what, Diara, I, I could not. I mean, what, this is what's happened. Diara, I, I can't believe what you just said. I don't, I don't believe a single thing you said. I think you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're yeah. wrong. And besides yeah. that, you're no good. And your mother yeah. wears combat boots. That's what we've gotten to now, as opposed to saying, you know what? I don't agree with anything you said, but I never, tell me that again so I can, what do you mean by that? Right. And that's what we got to get back to, or really simple, it's not doom and gloom. We won't have a United States of America. We will not have a democracy. It wasn't right. just dropped down on our lap. We got to work for it. Anything that's, right. that's worthwhile, you got to work for. We are right. a country, as my brother says, we're a nation based on ideals, and values. We're not ethnicity, not on religion, not on geography. We are ideals and the con- the, the constitution, which is law. So um, I think I just went off the rails again. And <laughs> I don't know where I went. So bring me back in, reel me back in again. I'm no, I mean, I think that's exactly where we need to be going. And, and you know, and I, I, again, I had the pleasure of serving in in administration, in the Obama administration, which of course Biden's were key to. And that is when I really truly understood how powerful our government is in 2010, for example. And it just was the way that the Department of Defense can move, the way that the Coast Guard, like it's just like it blew my mind, just like how resourced this country is. And if and if someone knows, <laughs> no dig at Trump, but obviously it is, you know. If someone knows how this government works, 
it can just be such a, a massive force of good. And I think yeah. to your point, a big part of that though is it, it's iteration, it's compromise, it's ideals. How do we get back to a point where we understand what our shared values are for this country? One way is just you right here on this podcast. When I started out, what we talked about in 72, women only opened headquarters. I was a rare fish and I was a lucky, I mean, I had it so much easier than many women because my brother sat at the head of the table and he said, she, when I walk out the store, she's the boss. You listen to her, what she says, assume that I'm saying it. And he could go out and campaign and win votes. Right mm. now, we, we haven't reached equity yet, but we're, no. we're going towards parity. The, the, the government and the, uh, and the views are changing because so many women are now in the game. That's right. It, we, we, women have changed the narrative. And it's not because we women are born superior or uh, more righteous uh, we, I mean, we could be as venal and as cruel and as manipulative as any man. So it's not that, you know, everything we, that we're so superior, but what we are is a, what we offer is a different perspective. We have a different mm-hmm. approach shot and it's you and your <laughs> colleagues and the women, not only what I, what I say when I speechify around about women's leadership, you don't have to be an elected official. You don't have to be in front of the band to be a leader. Every That's single right. woman who's listening to this right now should go tell the person who is not listening that they can be a leader. And the, and the way is that we change the narrative because we got to vote, 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 vote. And that changes the narrative. Right, right. But how do you not, and I guess this is just for me personally, I, you know, I, I think particularly when it comes to like, the, the the Democratic Party and having spent time having to be an advocate for people of color and for queer people. And, and, and I think oftentimes for me, I get disenchanted with the own, the, the, the work of getting our party there because I'm having to advocate on things that I think are the basics. And so that I think what happens to me then I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to concentrate on the candidates that I'm supporting, whether it's, you know, Stacey Abrams or Carlina Rivera, who's running now for yeah. Congress in New York. And I guess what's your advice for those of us that do feel disenchanted? But, you know, obviously I, I say all that and I kind of always say to my friends, I'm throwing my hands up and the next day I'm hosting a fundraiser. But how do we not lose that passion about staying engaged and making sure that our party in particular is, is accessible and is kind of leading the charge and that we don't feel like we're kind of secondary until, you know, it's two weeks before midterms. What I say in the book is that there's a phrase, water seeks its own level, meaning that we go out and we we have to unite. We have to talk to people who we understand uh, and appreciate us, but then we got to we got to move out. The problem is we just listen to people, not not you and me, but again, broad yeah. strokes. We just listen yep. to people who sound like ourselves. That's right. That's right. And That's we right. just talk to, we talk at those people. Right. And what we have to do is uh, we, we simply, we cannot give up hope. We, my, my brother has said many times, you know, hate doesn't disappear. It just hides under a rock. Mm. And what has happened with this 
our past president and the past administration is, you know, bulldozers came and lifted the rocks and all the hate came up and was given breathing room again. And we have to each, when we, when I talk about in, in the book about our campaigns, and this was the honest to God truth, Every single, the first one was called the Children's Crusade. That's the press stuff mm-hmm. to that because nobody took us seriously. But every single person in that campaign when we won believed that she or he won that campaign for us. Mm. So it is, the, it is the power of one. So we have to get back. Uh, we've lost touch with our basic, uh, yeah. humanity. you know, empathy is, yeah. I say in, in the book, it's a connective tissue. In, right. in our humanity, and it keeps us from going off the rail. So it sounds preachy. It doesn't sound preachy. And I think what, you know, and what's ironic about all of this, I think, is it is my belief the best way for us to, to kind of come together as a, as a country or at least start to, you know, start to peel back some of these layers and get back to, like, how do we even relate to one another is actually in door knocking. I love canvassing. It's my favorite thing to do. And I like to do it in areas where, you know, people, you know, are the the most different from me, presumably background, et cetera. But I always find I have the most enriching conversations and, and really am a part of a democratic process when I'm canvassing, when I'm volunteering at a caucus. Like, so I, I say all that, one to get your reaction, but also for the list, I hope the listeners are perking up in terms of, you know, if you haven't canvassed before, if you haven't door knocked before, if you haven't really gotten out there during a campaign, it really, I feel like is, is my best example at my best experience that I've had at democracy at work. That's exactly right. And it works for the person you're canvassing and it works for you. It's a two way street. And, you know, there's a Kierkegaard has an expression that, that like Kierkegaard, like he and I are tight. You know? yes. I mean, he, he was just talking to it's me like yesterday. Me. It's like me and Oprah. It's like when I talk about yeah, Oprah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he just said. But Kierkegaard said that faith sees best in the dark. Mm. And we have to believe in our system. And the people don't care what you know until they know you care. Mm. So when you go and you knock on that door, you're putting yourself out there. The people at the door and say, what do you want? Right. You know, what are you here for? And you say, well, uh, and you want to talk about a policy. Uh, and they're, they're completely against it. But they see a real live person. Is, and you say, mm-hmm. what, you know, what are you, t- tell me what I can do. Tell me what right. we can do to make this work better. And mm-hmm. it's a lot more effort. But that is what my, my brother is a natural at. And, yeah. and I think... Uh, you know, we would, all of us uh, ha- have had adversity in our lives. And the other thing people say to me so frequently when they're talking about the book is, and my, my family, is that you've, you've had so much tragedy in your life. And I said, yeah, but so have you. Uh, right. DR, I don't know what yours is, but yeah. you've had it. Mm-hmm. And more is coming. With my brother's case, when he, he was what people don't know or some know is that when he was a little boy he could not he stuttered so terribly he couldn't put more than three words together at a time and for each one of us each one of us who has been humiliated Mm -hmm. and i mean they they thought stutterers and still do you can make 
everybody makes fun of a stutterer. Yeah. Not everybody. Yeah. Again, you know what I mean? Bullies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. their easy targets. And because stutterers are stupid. And my mother would say to him, Joey, you, you stuttering, it's not because you're stupid. It's because you're so smart. Your brain works so fast. You can't get the words out fast enough. It's about confidence. But when you've been humiliated, when you've been told to go into that corner, when you've been told to sh sit down and shut up, you know, that file stays in your throat for a long time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, and you have a choice to make. You can choose to become a bully yourself which many people do, or you can realize that we're all in this together and try to make it work. And I think that what turned out to be a terrible, if a parent or a sister could change and say, no, 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 I'm, take that stutter away from Joe. Don't make him suffer through that all those mm -hmm. years. Don't, you know, don't do that to my child. But I think that turned out to be the best thing for him because layer by layer, this little boy built a backbone of steel, a backbone yeah. of character. And yeah. he decided that that's how he never was going to treat another person. And that's mm -hmm. what makes him the president that he is today. There is no daylight between the public person and the private man. I mean, mm -hmm. whether you like him or you don't, he's real. He's, he's right. there. And as you said, and I'm responsible for some of that, <laughs> for raising that boy. You know, I, while I was at the State Department, during yeah. the uh, the Obama administration, one uh, I worked for. There's a bureau called International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. Naturally, um, but one of the things that we worked on was developing legal systems around the world. And part of that program was working with attorney generals' offices to have oh. attorneys go to different countries. Um, My bow. Yeah, and I I had just the most lovely and enlightening and beautiful interactions with, with Bo while he was attorney general. And, you know, there are often times when I little, I mean, at the time I was probably like 27, but I'd have to get on the phone and brief him about something or, or the other. I had no business doing so probably, but I was a political appointee. So that was the job that I had. <laughs> but I, I do think I mean, what an incredible light in even the time while we had him and just, you know, it's so I'm sure you, you know, you all hear so many people that he, he's had an impact on during his short life. And I, and I am one of those human beings. So I just one wanted to acknowledge, just share that experience with our listeners. But yeah, just to acknowledge it and to, to thank you for your hand in that, because I'm sure like your brother, <laughs> you also had a big hand in raising Bo. Bo Biden, uh, the late Bo Biden, a magnificent young man who died at 46 years old from brain cancer. He was a healthy specimen when he came back from Iraq. And mm -hmm. it was, um, a, a, he got a death sentence uh, 13 months before. And this was in 2014 is when he died. But go backwards. Um, we, we won the election November 7th. Joe's 29 years old. He has to wait till November 20th when he turns 30 to be eligible to accept that he was uh, now the senator-elect from the state of Delaware. And Joe and I were in Washington, D.C. Uh, on December 18th. We went down to hire staff because he was this great, you know, wonder, this young man. And we had stacks and stacks of, of applications. The Senate was in recess for Christmas. Senator Byrd said you could use our, his office 
Joe and I are down there interviewing staff. The phone rings. It's my brother, Jimmy Biden. And he said, come home, come home now. And what had happened, Amelia was in, that's Joe's late wife, was in the station wagon with Bo, who was three, Hunter, who was two, and baby uh, Caspi in the car seat, who was 13 months old. She just picked up the Christmas tree. They're on their way home. It broadside by a tractor trailer. Amelia and the baby were killed instantly because they hit the tractor trailer, hit her side. And Bo and Hunt in the car were thrown thousands of miles. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. And they, uh, the boys ended up in the hospital for quite some time with very serious injuries. One of the reasons, again, that, I mean, healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. Joe had good insurance. We had a whole family to sustain each other. Every other person's child is as loved and as worthy of the care that my boys got, our boys got. And that's why my brother is such an advocate for the, what, the affordable health care and continue expanding that. Mm-hmm. Make a long story short, my brother said, and the boys have lost a father, the Delaware can lose a senator because I can't go down and serve and leave the boys because, uh, you know, there was mom, mom and dad and Uncle Jimmy and Uncle Frankie and Aunt Val here. They had already lost mommy and the baby. So I said to him, nothing heroic, exactly what my brothers would have said to me. Yeah, you can do that, Joe. Uh, This is why the commuting started. I said, I'll Mm -hmm. move in and stay until it's time to go. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And the senators were great, Republican and Democrats, much more collegial. They said, come down, Joe, give it six months. And I said, Joe... You work too hard for this. The voters put too much trust in you. Neil, you work too hard for this. Just give it a try. Mm. And it lasted 37 years. <laughs> and five years after I, I moved in, Joe and Jill met and they got married. I never tried to, mommy was mommy. That was mm. Amelia. I was always Aunt Val. I never tried to be mom because I hoped that Joe at 30 years old would find love again and, mm. and life. So, but I had these boys they turned um, three and four in February. This accident was in December. So mm-hmm. I got them for the next five years. So these are my boys. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely didn't. And I think what I agonized around was just like, of what I know of you, what I've read of you, the book, like there's so much warmth and joy. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't want to kind of take us into tragedy, but I think, but it's not, but it's not tragedy. Right. I think, I think, you know, these, these stories are stories and these people are people that have shaped your, shaped your family and and shaped so many others. Um, And so I think even what, what, you know, is understandably tragic, it's also have been. There was a lot of joy that, that's still okay. Exactly. Exactly. Mom, I, I tell you, there's one story about the Pope. When Pope Francis came to Washington, Bo died in May 2014, May 30th, on my parents' anniversary. And my parents had already, they were in heaven ready to grab him when he, when he came. And uh, it was devastating to this mm. family. And uh, you talk about faith seeing best in the dark. I mean, I'm a practicing Catholic, and I wanted to strangle somebody with my rosary beads. You know, I mean, like, how could this possibly, and people with, of goodwill, said it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's God's will. And I said, this is not God's will. Why would God, and they meant well, but I, you know, it's like, why? 
why, 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 why? Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. I, the, the four hardest words for me to say, uh, in, you know, my, my fists are clenched and we think, you know, we're in control and we're driving down the road and, and you gotta let go. And the hardest words for me to say were, thy will be done. Because mm. I did not want thy will be done. I wanted my will to be done and I wanted Bo to keep living. So it was hard to do that. And the Pope came in September 23rd. I remember as if it were yesterday. And there all the Senate, the dignitaries, the vice president, uh, we're all outside the Basilica and they're big jumbo screens. And Fra Pope Francis was giving his homily and across the, the words were on the screen. And his, he said, the message was, you have to keep moving forward. Mm. And I was sitting there. My daughter Casey was next to me and Uncle Joe was next to her. And I leaned over to Joe and I said, he's talking to us. I actually believed, I felt the Pope keep moving forward. Mm. because when tragedy strikes, our, our inclination is, you know, we shrivel, we bent yep. just our body mode, you know, we yep. cover our face, we move down and keep moving forward. And God love my brother. We kept my, I mean, yeah. we could not run for president in 2016 because of that, because we had a heel yeah. and he never had any intention of running for president until Trump and Charlottesville. That's and right. uh, he said, I, I can't back away because I'm afraid. And we kept moving forward. And that's where we are today. Well, Valerie, thank you for that. And it's, it's of course, you, you know, you, you've done it again. But we usually end the podcast with asking what's a piece of advice that has stuck with you. And you just did that intuitively, which oh. is no surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> with, thank you. With the, with the advice that, you know, you got to move forward. You got to move forward. And you so, don't forget. You, don't, you, yes, you can never forget. That's you, right. But you got to open your fist and say, okay, I'm yeah. doing the, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be that's the right. best Valerie Biden Owens I can be, which that's sometimes right. falls way, 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 way short. Oh, but I, I got to, uh, you know, I, yeah. I got it. So thank you for your patience and for your intelligence no, and thank uh, you. for, thank you for, for telling everybody pod. to get growing up Biden, you know, yes, it's not easy. Yes. Y'all go out and get this book. Seriously. I just, we all loved it. And I think it's what, it's what, you know, it's what we need now. It's just these, these reminders of what our values are and who we are as a country and who we want to, who we want to continue to be and, and progress to be. So Valerie Biden Owens, thank All you right, so much friend. for joining thank us. Thank you. I appreciate Look you. having you back. You too. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Podsy of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Podsy of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.